This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So what I'd like to do today is to talk to you about CRISPR. Uh, it's another part of what I do. Uh, human genome editing with CRISPR. Again, this is a first world issue. Right? So the Philippines does not struggle with human genome editing. We're struggling with starvation. But 49% of the population earn less than $5.50 a day. So we're not going to be worried about CRISPR. But here in this country, we certainly do. And what I like to do is to go over CRISPR and give you a sense of CRISPR uh, in three areas. First of all, the science. I am a molecular biologist, so we'll go over the science so you understand what CRISPR is all about. Then we're going to talk about a couple of distinctions so you know the differences that come into play when we talk about the ethical import of, of this paradigm. So let's begin. Uh, how many of you are familiar with CRISPR? I just want to get a sense. Okay, cool. All right. So what I'm going to do is just go over the science. So the human genome, so the genome is basically all the genetic information uh, that is carried by an organism. And for human beings, uh, when we think about the genome, we think primarily of the nuclear genome. And this is where you get the chromosomes, the 23, 23, 23 from mom, 23 from dad. It's the classic image of a genome. But what we don't realize is that the mitochondrial genome also exists as a very small uh, circular piece of DNA that you only inherit from your mom. And one of the things that's amazing, of course, if you compare all the mitochondrial genomes, all uh, the people on the planet, we know we're descended from one woman, but she was not the only woman living at the time, okay? So this is mitochondrial Eve, and the same thing happens with all the males. The males are descended from a single male. They didn't live at the same time. I'm not gonna go over how that all figures out. <laughs> and they did not live at the same time and they were not the only ones in the population. But uh, all of this genome stuff basically uh, comes down to DNA. And so this is just an image where you take a single chromosome, you stretch it out, it comes out to the, the iconic double helix. And what's really fascinating, of course, if I stretch out your entire genome about seven feet, and yet we're gonna have to insert that giant piece of spaghetti into a bowl that is the biggest cell is the period at the end of a uh, Times New Roman 12-point font period, and that's a human egg. That's the largest cell. So imagine taking a spaghetti that long and rolling it up in such a way that it's completely organized, right, so that you know where all the parts are. We don't, as biologists, we really don't know how that works. We're only beginning to understand how all that information is compressed and compacted in a really organized way. But if you look at DNA, uh, DNA is presented primarily as a genetic code, the GATC. Each of these letters represents a particular molecule. This is the gene, actually, that my students and I have been working on for 10 years. This is our gene. Um, it's uh, Bax inhibitor. It's a gene that is upregulated in several cancers. And so we're basically trying to identify novel chemotherapeutic agents that will prevent this gene from working. Um, you and I have six versions of this gene. Yeast only has one, which is why it's really cool to study yeast because you can knock it out and then you can look at an organism without it. You, this would be very difficult with mice, humans, especially humans, um, to knock it out. So the human genome is made up of three billion of these bases. And the idea here, right, 
is that CRISPR will now allow us to go in there and edit that encyclopedia. So if there's 46 chromosomes, and each chromosome is like a volume, with CRISPR, in principle, we can go to volume four, pull it out, open it up to page 422, the 33rd line from the bottom, the fourth character from the left, let's change that from G to T. That's the beauty it's an, and the power of this technology. Um, we, can, we can switch it around. And so it's a molecular editing machine. It can be done in many different ways. Basically, this is a, an image of it. So um, it's made up of two components. It's basically a pair of targeted scissors, right? So you need to have the targeting mechanism that targets the, the scissors to a particular place in the genome. And so this is what usually, what, this is what happens. So the guide RNA is the targeting system. And depending upon which guide RNA you introduce into the cell, the scissors will be targeted to a particular point, a very precise point, and it makes two cuts. Now, because the DNA is double, it's a double helix. Now, here's the challenge. For those of you who are bi biologists in the audience, you know that if you make a double break, a double strand break in DNA, this is highly mutagenic. Um, this causes cancer. It triggers a whole bunch of defense mechanisms. So the cell is going to try to do all that it can to fix it. And it can do it in two ways. So on the left-hand side, it can attempt to repair now, I will attempt to repair this, but what inevitably happens is it removes some of the information that is found at that location, and so you disrupt the gene. The gene is simply uh, destroyed. Uh, the, 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 the fascination with CRISPR is on the right, because what you can do is you can introduce, at the same time that you cut the DNA, information that the cell will use to repair the break in a such a way that you introduce novel information into the DNA of that organism. So you see, so the left-hand side is basically just to break stuff up, but the right-hand side allows you to edit. And this is where we're moving forward. How are we gonna edit different things? So in terms of the history of this, we're dealing really, really recent. So the Nobel Prize was given in 2022 for this, right? Uh, and this is Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna. And their first paper describing this was, was basically seven years before. So it went from original discovery to Nobel Prize in less than a decade. Okay, That's how incredible this technology is. It's really revolutionized everything we think about genome editing. And it will change your children, literally, okay, and our grandchildren. Now, let's talk about how it's being used already. So this is, um, you can do in vivo editing. So on the left-hand side, you've got a mouse, and the mouse has a mutation in one of its genes. It has a hereditary disease, uh, tyrosinemia. And what you can do is you basically inject the CRISPR editing machine with the proper information into the liver of that mouse. The mouse will fix some cells, not the entire liver, but enough cells of the liver that the liver recovers the minimal function in order to, quote, cure the hereditary disease. So this has happened already. We are also having, we also have gene drives. This is, uh, when we think about gene editing, we think about gene editing of individuals. 
but we now have the capacity to gene edit populations. So you imagine mosquitoes, because this is what we're thinking about right now. So on the left-hand side, you've got a, um, a red fly, a red mosquito, red fly, red fly and a blue fly. And let's say you have a mutation um, and you basically have a 50-50 chance of giving that mutation to your kid. And so you can see that the red basically moves down a particular path in the pedigree. But using CRISPR on the right, what we can do, and I'm not going to have a chance to really explain this in detail, is that you can change the hereditary pattern so that in time, the entire population inherits the gene that you've introduced. Now, this gene is a gene that makes females infertile. If this is a gene that makes mosquitoes unable to produce babies, then you can wipe out an entire population of mosquitoes by simply releasing into the wild females and males with a CRISPR uh, target that will go around basically mating with wild mosquitoes. And over time, the population is diminished. So um, this is already happening. Actually, this is a paper in Nature Biotechnology from uh, five years ago. So you have uh, a CRISPR-Cas gene drive against Anopheles gambiae mosquitoes. Uh, there are a bunch of uh, Anopheles aegyptii. There are a bunch of, now people go, mosquitoes. There are 3,000 mosquito species. We're not just talking about, we're going to get rid of all mosquitoes. But the idea here is to get rid of certain species of mosquitoes that are human, that are vectors for human disease. I mean, that's the proposal. There are ethical and ecological questions that, that arise. We can talk about that in a minute. We're also, so this is where, uh, this is actually a company, Oxitec Inc. It's already been doing this, uh, the Cayman Islands in, in Brazil. So they're, they're basically doing this. Now, they've also done this for rodents. So the idea, let's wipe out all the rats in New York City subways. How do you do that? Well, you can do toxic uh, pesticides, right? Bad for the environment, blah, 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 blah. So people are saying, let's just gene drive them. So we're going to set out rats that are going to meet with the rats in the subway. And over time, we sterilize and basically, you know, prevent them from reproducing like crazy. And you get rid of all the rats. This is the kind of thinking that is behind this. This is in February of 2020, of 2019. So this is, again, it's super, it's, it's just a proof, a principle that we can actually do this in animals. Now, we have not surprisingly, it's being used in, G in humans as well. There are two particular ways that we're going to think about. So there's what the above is, the, the, the panel A is in vivo gene editing. What you do there is you take a virus you take the virus and you use the virus as a delivery system for your editing machine. You take the virus, you, you infect the virus in whatever tissue you want. It introduces the uh, editing machine into the body. Boom, 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 editing happens. Now, um, the second, the below, is called ex vivo gene editing. And this is the favored one at the moment because what you do is you take stem cells out of the patients you edit the stem cells, and then you make sure there are no mistakes. You make sure that the stem cells are exactly how you want them to be. 
and then you put them back into the patient. So that's in vivo and ex vivo. Uh, we've done this now with sickle cell anemia. So you can, um, basically what you're shown here is that the sickle cell anemia patient has a single mutation in his or her G DNA. So instead of a GAG, it's a GTG. So that GTG there, and then uh, for biochemical reasons that we can't get into right now, it leads to the sickling of the erythrocytes, the red blood cells. And so what happens now is you take the hemopoietic stem cells, the blood cells from the bone marrow, uh, the, bone stem, the blood stem cells, you genetically engineer them with CRISPR outside the lab, you reintroduce them into the patient, and the idea here is you get healthy red blood cells. So it's happened already, okay? So this is May of 2019. Now, uh, we also have in vivo gene editing um, of age-related macular degeneration. So this is a uh, age-dependent loss of vision because the retina simply dies, okay? And the idea here, and it's genet there are gene genetic mutations that can give rise to this. The idea here is it's called genome surgery. We take the Cas9, the CRISPR-Cas9, we inject it into the eye, and it will correct some of the retinal cells at the back of your eye. The hope is that your cells will recover, and there will be enough sight. One of the most amazing things is um, when I was work, you know, visiting a company that does this, I'll be presenting their, one of their slides in a minute, I didn't realize you, you only need like 15% of your retinal cells to work in order for you to be able to maneuver. You're not going to be able to throw dots, okay? But it's enough for you to basically walk around the world without running into things. And for patients, that's all they want, right? They don't want to be, they don't want full actions. They want enough just to maneuver in the world. So 15%, 20% of editing uh, would, would be sufficient. And that's really the target. And this is Editas Medicine. This is the company I was talking to you about. So there's a gene basically that is, um, there's a splicing error for those who are molecular biologists. And on the left-hand side, because of this error, the cells that receive light end up committing suicide. They die. But on the right-hand side, the idea is that they're corrected and the patient is able at some level to distinguish lightness and darkness and be able to, as I said, walk through an obstacle course. I mean, it's interesting how the target is, the, 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 the threshold of success for this kind of gene editing is simply the patient is able to walk through an obstacle course. And I've seen pictures of it. It's amazing when they actually are able to do that. Now, uh, not surprisingly, it's also happened in human embryos now. So uh, the CRISPR has been used to edit the genomes of human embryos. This is uh, Shukrat Metalopov's lab in Oregon. Uh, this was August of 2017. It's about five years ago. And the idea here, I'm not going to go into the details, is that they were able, and this is very controversial, this data is very controversial, I highlight that, they propose that they've been able to correct the genetic defect in human embryos that is responsible for uh, a myocardial, um, a heart uh, problem, a heart dysfunction. And uh, if you go in the literature, there's a back and forth that's been going on for five years because there are a lot of other scientists who don't believe this data. And I'm just, but, but I'm just telling you it was published. And uh, again, November 2018, 
This is Hei Jiankui at the second international summit in human gene, genome editing announced that he had edited two babies that were born. Uh, we don't know these uh, where they are. Uh, they are supposed to be two Chinese girls um, in China. Um, they were born. This is a, we don't know where they are, thank God, because otherwise they'd be, they would be uh, guinea pigs for the rest of their lives. But um, he claimed that he had genetically engineered their genes because their father, which was, was HIV positive, and he, he, he attempted to change certain genes that would, quote, make them resistant to uh, HIV. Okay? Deeply, deeply controversial. Uh, not the ethics, uh, many ethical questions, the science, so many things. I, he, he ended up in prison, okay, just to give you a sense of what happened there. Um, and then this was in 2020. This was published uh, the first year of the pandemic. Uh, it turns out that CRISPR, when you, so there were three papers published early in 2020 that showed that the introduction of CRISPR into human genomes wrecks, quote, chromosomal mayhem. And um, there were a lot of anomalies associated with that, which is why in light of these papers, that original paper with uh, Shukrap in Oregon and then Hei Jiankui have become even more controversial. Just want you to see kind of like big picture landscape of how genome editing is happening right now. And uh, in 2019, what was interesting is that there's the discovery of gene editing without the double break if you remember, that double break is highly mutagenic. So this is a discovery made up made at Harvard, where basically they 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 use um, again. I'm not going to go into the details, but they're able to edit the DNA without breaking those two strands of the DNA double helix, and this is supposed to lower the error rate associated with gene editing and the abnormal side effects that could happen because this, these double-strand breaks induce um, all sorts of chaos in the cells. All right, let's go to a couple of distinctions. I just want to highlight before we go to the genetics. So the distinction, we've, we've done this already, ex vivo versus in vivo. So remember, ex vivo is I take your cells out, I edit this, this, your cells outside your body, return the edited cells, hopefully corrected, double-checked, everything else put back in. In vivo is I introduce the machinery into your cells, into your body, and it goes in there and, and uh, you attempt to fix. Another one is somatic and germline. This is really important. So the idea here is somatic cells are all the cells except your gametes. Gametes are your sperm and your egg. So the idea here is what sort of gene editing can be done to you and what sort of gene editing could be done to your kids? That's basically the difference here. It's present people versus future people, right? And um, that's controversial. And then there's this one called therapy and enhancement. And I just wanna highlight this. I've I don't believe this is legit uh, and I'll show you why. So a lot of people will argue therapy is good, enhancement is not. That's like a standard argument that I get. So the idea is, you know, is it a robust one? And in order to explore this, let's talk about LDL levels for patients at risk for cardiovascular disease. So this is the bad cholesterol, right? Now, what should 
what should we do if you go to your cardiologist and they check your, your LDL levels and they're like, mm, you're at risk for a heart, heart attack, we need to lower it. So the question is, how low should we lower it to? So the average LDL levels amongst U.S. adults aged 20 to 74 years of age is 119 milligrams per deciliter. The normal range is from 90 to 130, okay? So now, which should it be? Now, it turns out, so the recommended tar target levels are less than 100 is optimal. Now, let's go back to the therapy versus enhancement. So therapy is usually understood to be return to the species norm. Enhancement is I'm going to change you in such a way that your characteristics fall outside the species norm. Either your IQ is going to be 500, where the IQ is usually around 100 with a normal curve, right? So that's what we mean enhance. I'm going to give you super bionic vision so you can see much better than 2020. That's enhancement. So enhancement usually tends to mean I change you in such a way that you fall outside the norms established by our species. But already we see that a common practice that has been going on for decades since the discovery of statins is we actually enhance, already enhance millions of people because we give them enough drugs to lower their LDL beyond the species norm. Where do we lower it to? Well, look, if you go to hunter-gatherer tribes in Papua New Guinea, it turns out their average LDL levels is 70 milligram per deciliter. And if you go to non-human primates like macaques and gorillas, it's even lower, 30 to 50. And then there's this dude, he has a mutation <laughs> in the PCSK9, he's walking around. He's got 15 milligrams per deciliter. He's like super, super, super LDL low. So now, all right, you go into your doctor. You go, your doctor goes, how low do you want to go? Well, you go, well, I only want therapy. So I want to get down to the mean, 119. No, the doctor's like, no, 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 no. We're going to have to go down, down, down. Let's go down. So you're like this mutated guy, uh, super mutant, PCSK9 mutation, 15 milligrams per deciliter. And so what should the target be? And it turns out that ethically, our society has no problems with enhancing LDL levels. We just don't. There are millions of people out there with enhanced bodies already, okay? Now, you're like, well, I'm giving pills. Well, I can just mutate PCSK9. I'll just mutate your liver so that you have PCSK9 and then your LDL levels will drop. So it's either through uh, small molecules or genetics but we're basically enhancing already. And if, so if you're against enhancing, you have to be against the millions of people who are enhanced, walk, enhanced mutant humans walking around with really, really low LDL levels. Because you can see that. You see, if therapy returns to the species norm, but that's actually not common practice now. It's, they try to push it down as much as possible. Why? Because it turns out all the studies show the lower it is, the better the outcomes for a heart, a cardiovascular incidence. So you see, I, what I want to point out is that most people simply take, uh, they simply say, yeah, it's fine to enhance our LDL levels. So we don't seem to have a problem with, uh, with enhancement per se. So because what we see is that there are therapeutic enhancements that do promote the human good of health. And I think um, 
this is what I would like to distinguish. So I, I want to distinguish between therapeutic and non-therapeutic. And even this, uh, when it gets a little bit we, in the Q&A, you can see it can be a little bit fuzzy depending upon what exactly you're talking about. But I, I, I think this is a much stronger distinction than therapy and enhancements, non-therapeutic versus therapeutic. Okay, let's go to the ethics. So the third part of this talk for the last 10 minutes or so. Um, we have to begin with human dignity, okay? Because uh, it's the bedrock principle of Catholic, basically the Catholic moral uh, framework, Catholic social teaching. Um, and it's disputed in our culture today as whether or not we have dignity, okay? So uh, we, I, I don't have a chance to get into that. The sec and you'll see the difference between the secular account and a faith-based account, or at least a philosophical uh, a natural law-based account. Okay, so uh, this is a doc uh, document from the Congregation from the Doctrine of Faith from the Vatican. The very first line uh, starts off with this. The dignity of a person must be recognized in every human being from conception to natural death. This is really the heart of Catholic moral teaching, especially Catholic bioethics, right? And this, uh, the dignity of a person, this is the document on uh, bioethics from the, Catholic, uh, from the Catholic Church. Now, it's interesting because the Catholic bishops also say that. They talk about the inherent dignity of the human persons must be respected and protected regardless of the nature of the person's health, problems, or social status. And this, is, this was the key principle that drove the discussions on triage of ventilators during the initial onslaught of COVID-19. How are you going to, to, to allocate a scarce resource like ventilators? If you have 100 people you know, being flooded into a New York uh, medical hospital, a hospital emergency room, and you only have 10 um, ventilators, what do you do? And it's actually, so I had to think about that, write about that two years ago. And this was the foundational principle for that. And even the German, Constitution. So this is the Grundgesetz. The opening line, not surprisingly, because this was written in 1945, right after the, 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 the Shoah. So what you, you know, you go back to this and it says, human dignity shall be inviolable. This is the opening sentence of the basic constitution of the German Federal Republic. But the question always is, what is it, right? Dignity. And I think the best way to think about it is, it's an answer to this question. How much are you worth, right? So here, here we go. So if I look at an iPhone 7, you can tell this is, slide was made a long time ago. Uh, 32G worth, right? Now we're up to 13, but then there's the SC, which is the discount version. It's amaz amazing how we talk about a phone that's cost $450. That's the discount economy <laughs> version. But how much is an iPhone 7 worth, right? So, um, You'll notice there's two different values associated with a phone. What's called the teardown cost. If I take this phone and I simply break it apart. So if, um, say, Samsung bought an iPhone, they can take this apart and they can price every single part. And they can price how much it would take to put this part together. This is the intrinsic value of the phone. It's $219.80. It's called the teardown cost. Now, there's also the suggested retail price. Now, this is the extrinsic value because it depends upon where you buy it. If you buy it on uh, Prime Day, it may go down, right? If you buy it on Amazon, it may go down. 
If this was the iPhone 7 that was held by, oh, I don't know, Taylor Swift, it would go up, right? So, so, so what ends up happening is you've got a value that is fluctuating for this phone. So there's an intrinsic value. This is the value of the phone from the moment the phone comes together until the moment the phone falls apart. And then there's the extrinsic value that depends upon who knows what, right? Discounts, celebrity, and the like. The, 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 the idea here is that many faith-based, the Catholic tradition being one, is that you have both an intrinsic and an extrinsic worth. How much are you worth intrinsically? What would your mother say? <laughs> Priceless. <laughs> you see what I mean? Now, what are you worth extrinsically? What do we use today to measure that? Yeah? Wasn't like some lawsuit where they engineered made a defective car that killed people and they computed the word? They do that too, but what, what is it more simply? What are you worth? Yeah. Yeah. Asset? You're not asset, you're salary. Oh. Right? So <laughs> right, I mean, isn't that what we say how much you're worth? Now it's interesting. It's interesting. Because I once asked this. I once asked this uh, in the Philippines. And one of the Filipinos said, Oh, it costs it how much you are worth is how much it will cost for me to hire someone to kill you. <laughs> it's an interesting Proposal. <laughs> right? If I can get an assassin, and you can get an assassin basically in, in the Philippines for 50 bucks, I can tell you, you are worth 50 bucks. It's an interesting, but I, but I want you to see that there's the intrinsic part and there's the extrinsic part, and how you measure that extrinsic part is going to vary. This is, so if you want to talk about the secular account versus the uh, Catholic account, you have to understand this. The secular account of bioethics proposes that the only measure of worth you have is extrinsic. So if you lose your job, if you lose your memory, if you lose your any of your physiological capacities, your worth goes down. You understand? And so now you can kill yourself, or we can kill you, because you don't have worth anymore. But the the, the, the classical view, uh, and it's a Christian. Jewish and probably Islamic view is that there's an intrinsic value where regardless of how you look, regardless of what you function like, whether or not you are a newborn or an Alzheimer's patient, end stage, stage seven at 80 years old, can't remember a thing, can't even remember something. Regardless of whether or not your extrinsic value goes up and down in life, which it will, the intrinsic value that you are priceless remains. And then this therefore becomes a threshold to which we will compare each other, right? So this is the, this is the reason why we can say men and women are equal. Because if we don't say that, we say that, that everything is extrinsic, then there's nothing, there's no one thing that all of us have equally. Because everything's usually on a normal curve, you understand? There are smarter people, more beautiful people, there are dumber people, there are uglier people. There are fatter people and thinner people, wealthier people, or poor people. There's always going to be a range. But we, we fundamentally say that all human beings are radically equal. And that's actually grounded in an intrinsic account of human dignity, 
But for reasons I can't get into right now, that is severely challenged because there's only two ways you can defend that. One is you have to have a hierarchy of being where there's a God and we are made in the image and likeness of God. And since God is Christ as we are, that is not possible for a secular uh, account. You understand? The second is you have to talk either that or you go philosophically and you say, they're part of us is made up of spirit. And because spirit is eternal, spirit is priceless. So you, so, and that's a philosophical argument based upon the way we think, the way we have abstract thought. That too is at, under attack because basically a lot of people today think we're just computers, right? So, so when you see this, you will understand why once you remove the intrinsic dignity, you cannot defend that, all of a sudden, everything is up for grabs. Now, the, the challenge, of course, is we want to keep everyone as equal, regardless of whether or not what they look like. Or, but at the same time, we want to say that they can be able to do whatever they want, whether or not they're going to kill themselves or edit themselves or whatever. So this is why there's an inherent tension in, in, in contemporary society. We are taking the patrimony of Christianity, trying to keep parts of it, because those parts are so important for human rights and for democracy, but we don't know how to justify them anymore. And then when China, the Chinese attack intellectually, why? So the Chinese are arguing, we're not equal. I mean, uh, this is long before, my, before I became a priest, but when I was in Thailand, I was dating this uh, beautiful girl, and she was basically saying, look, men and women are not equal. She's Buddhist, right? This all came up because one day we were having a conversation. She's like, when we get married, I'll help you buy, uh, I'll help you buy, I'll help you choose your minor wife. I'm like, what's a minor wife? And she's like, well, I'll live with you upstairs. The minor wife is going to be downstairs because you're a guy. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, guys need more than one. I'm like, what? <laughs> now, I don't know if you know, the current king of Thailand has three wives. So, so, because this is in the culture. And she goes, oh, clearly. Guys, I said, no, 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 it's just one. I'm Christian. We're one, one. Why, why one, one? Because we're equal. She goes, we're not equal. I'm a woman. You're a man. Whoa. Now, <laughs> the interesting part is, with, with, despite all my arguments, she, she had lots of strong arguments to propose why women are not equal to men. But the most, the, the, the foundational argument for that is this intrinsic dignity stuff which has been thrown out uh, in a post-Christian secular world, which is inaccessible to non-Christian societies. So you see how intellectually uh, we're in a bind. So the idea here is that intrinsic dignity, we are priceless, extrinsic dignity, salary, celebrity, right? And this is important because, for example, if there's one heart and there's two people who come in, one of them is President Biden, the other one is Matthew over there, and we have to figure out who gets the heart. How do we decide? How do we decide? <laughs> I want to ask the girlfriend, because she'll go, of course, Matthew, but, 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 how do we decide in our society today? <laughs> yeah. We say the sickest gets it. Now, we say this precisely to avoid saying that the President of the United States is worth more than Matthew.
But there are non-Christian countries where they say, why bother? There are, the president of the United States has more responsibility. More people rely on him. Why is it not reasonable that he should receive the heart when Matthew and Matthew should be allowed to die? You understand there, it's reasonable there. Okay. If you do not think that all of us are radically equal because of our intrinsic dignity, that position is actually viable. So um, it's about worth and it's about simply being human. Okay. So now uh, what's interesting is that once you acknowledge, once you accept that there is such a thing called intrinsic dignity, this now elevates you about above society because societies don't give you dignity like they give you citizenship. The idea is it's acknowledged, recognized, not bestowed. And it cannot be bestowed because if it's bestowed, it can also be retracted, right? And so this is, again, this is a deeply, deeply, deeply Western view that the, the East has, doesn't quite get. All right. Notice, too, that intrinsic dignity is absolute, right? You cannot have half dignity because you cannot be half human. You either are human or you're not which is why it's conception until natural death. Because what, it's just like, when does this phone have its intrinsic value? Once the phone gets together, once you put it together, even if you haven't turned it on, it's already got its intrinsic value. And it goes all the way until you take it apart. This is the, the fundament, this is the foundation between the conception until natural death. So faith-based bioethics, like Catholic bioethics, they, they say we have to preserve both intrinsic and extrinsic. So when we talk about CRISPR, there are dignity concerns. There are really four of them. There's safety of persons, commodification of persons, marginalization of persons, and just access. Notice we're always dealing with persons here because dignity is a predicate of person. All right, so safety of persons. This is we have to make sure that the technology is safe. And there are two primary concerns, off-target mutations. It, instead of fixing this, it messes that up, and you get cancer, right? So either you have macular degeneration, you get eyeball cancer. Which one do you want? We don't want that choice. So we want off-target mutations. Those have to be mitigated. Chimeric tissues. So what percentage of the tissue has to be fixed in order for there to be success? The problem is that if you have chimera, uh, that might lead to dysfunction, right? So these are questions regarding safety. Ter in terms of a commodification, this has to do with designer babies. So the idea here is that um, once we allow designer babies, what the, the challenge is that persons are treated as a means to fulfill the desires of the parents. This is a very interesting question have no chance to get into it in more detail because it's also associated with IVF and the artificial reproductive technologies. Okay, that's another question. Because the, the, the idea here is once we open technology where we are using people to fulfill the desires of other people, how are we in some way undermining their dignity? Uh, the marginalizations of persons. So the idea here is that once we start designing people, you're going to have a standard, right? And I remember one of my students said, Father, you know, 100 years from now, the Catholics will be very obvious. They'll be the ugly ones. <laughs> <laughs> now, what he meant by that is that if we're not careful, our society is going to engage in a beauty race. 
It is already engaged in the beauty race, but now we will change our babies so they are beautiful. The question, of course, is beauty, the standards for beauty change. All you have to look is go to the, the Louvre and you can see how beauty has changed over the course of centuries. And so what you think is beautiful now may be ugly tomorrow. Now, there are basic standards of beauty associated with symmetry, um, and you can do this. There are studies that look at this. But the danger here is that we are actually going to exacerbate the eugenic temptations of society. We're going to get rid of the ugly people and only keep the beautiful ones. And then it will be only the rich people who get access to this. And their babies become pretty and beautiful, while the poor people have the ugly ones, right? So this, and again, so the idea here is the preferential access, uh, the preferential option for the poor and the vulnerable. How do we work this out together? All right, so I'll close with a couple of just slides. Should we permit CRISPR to be used in humans? I'm going to focus on the distinction, so therapeutic and non-therapeutic. Hopefully you have a sense for that now. Therapeutic is to preserve and promote health and well-being, and non-therapeutic is basically the negative of that. The other one is somatic cell gene editing and germline gene editing. Changing you versus changing your babies. And so this is a chart that I presented. So I have said that somatic gene editing for therapeutic purposes, so you have macular eye degeneration, it's okay to use gene editing to fix your eyes. It's okay to fix, use gene editing to fix your liver, to fix all of this sort of stuff. The idea here is as long as it's safe, effective, we should use gene editing to alleviate suffering. This is the mandate of Christ to help our weak brothers and sisters who are struggling. Now, the problem is that no. So why can't we fix a gene for future generations, for future people? The challenge here is that, you see, in order to allow this, you would have to do the benefits, benefits risk analysis. So if you go into the hospital and they're gonna say, we're gonna do this therapy on you, you have to say, well, what are the benefits, what are the risks? Because other, if you don't have that information, you can't give informed consent. You understand? And informed consent is necessary for any medical intervention to be allowed on you. Well, here's the thing. How are you going to get the information on the editing of future babies? Because you can't know what will happen to future babies unless you have future babies. Right? You can do everything with mice and rats and all sorts of monkeys. But at the end of the day, we won't know the true therapeutic benefits and risks associated with any CRISPR gene editing until we have basically clinical subjects. Now, when we have that, like when we tested the vaccines for COVID-19, uh, people could give consent. They could say, yeah, there are risks, but I'm willing to take those risks and I sign a dog life. A baby, a future person doesn't have that, so you can't. You can't do those experiments. And then non-therapeutic, um, I've said no. Again, promote social stigmatization, discrimination, uh, social pressures on parents to design their kids. I mean, I've had to deal with parents who are upset because their kids in Manhattan did not get into the best kindergarten. And I was like, whoa, what? Oh, yeah, yeah. I just had just baptized the baby. And they were like, right, we already tried the kid is like three months old. And they already put a, a uh, down payment for the kindergarten in 
someplace. I'm like, what? And they're like, well, because if he goes to this kindergarten, he can go to that elementary school, and that elementary school will now lead to that high school, then it's Harvard. And then from Harvard, he goes to Wharton, and then he's a major, major on Wall Street. I'm about to baptize the kid. You know? Now, imagine if now you put this technology in those parents' hands, right? The incredible social pressure for them to realize. And this is, and then what's interesting is um, I've talked to my own students about this. You know, I asked them, what happens if you found out you were, you were edited? You were chosen. You were designed. If I asked you that, what would you think? You know. So, so that's a lot of people go. Couldn't they have loved me just the way that I was supposed to be, right? Did they have to love me because I was X, Y, or Z? And there's something really profoundly human about that, I think. And then there, this is the whole. I don't know if you the savior babies. Right, there are children who are conceived to provide cells and tissue for a sibling. And so, you know, there are studies about them. Some siblings are like, well, I'm a hero. But a lot of them are like, they only wanted me because of my brother. And there's a sense of like, oh, right? And that's not a good thing, okay? That's not a good thing. 